0: Welcome to episode 54 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by actual true crime FBI cases. In this episode, we speak with retired agent Bill Dyson, who served nearly 31 years with the FBI. He's interviewed about how the Chicago Division's Organized Crime and Drug Enforcement Task Force while conducting an investigation targeting drug trafficking, overheard tidbits of information that seemed to indicate an international conspiracy involving the Al Rukin street gang and Libyan terrorists. Bill Dyson led the Chicago Joint Terrorism Task Force, the JTTF, that developed this information and determined that members of the Al Rukins were meeting with representatives of the then hostile government of Libya led by Colonel Muammar al-Qaddafi, to discuss a conspiracy to perpetrate a terrorist attack inside of the United States. The al-Rukin Libyan conspiracy investigation marked the first convictions of American citizens for conspiring to commit terrorist acts in their country on behalf of a foreign government in exchange for money. After retiring from the bureau, Bill Dyson was hired by the University of Illinois, and he authored a college textbook titled Terrorism, an Investigator's Handbook. Bill currently works for the Institute of Intergovernmental Research, IIGR, a nonprofit serving under a grant from the Department of Justice. He provides anti-terrorism training to state and local police officers throughout the United States. This case review is unbelievable. I don't recall if I heard about this back in the 80s, but it is just a, a wild story. So I think you're really going to enjoy it. But before we get to it, I do want to bring you up to date on my novel, Pay to Play, about a female FBI agent investigating corruption in the Philadelphia strip club industry. I did get two more reviews in this week, and I just want to read them to you real quick. The first one is from an anonymous reader. Great read. This was an interesting, fun book that offered insights into the grimy world of public corruption and law enforcement investigations. This is also a great accomplishment as a first book. I look forward to many more by Ms. Williams. I did learn a lot, which is always a plus. The second one is from Dominic P. Authentic and gritty. I heard of Pay to Play through Jerry's FBI Retired Podcast, and I could not have been more impressed. You can read the rest of the reviews to get perspective. But the one thing I have to touch on is how important it is to remember that this book was written from the POV point of view of an FBI agent. With that said, the little intricacies really give you an insight to the daily life of an FBI agent, which is something that is invaluable for people like me who are interested in the job. A plus Jerry. Can't wait for the next one. Thank you, Anonymous Reader and Dominic P for buying and reviewing pay to play. As you know, I make no income from this podcast, and my time and expenses to produce and host FBI Retired Case File Review are supported by you. When you pick up a copy of pay to play for yourself or as a gift for someone who loves crime fiction, you're helping to defray the cost for me to continue to produce ad free content on a weekly basis. Plus, as you can tell from the reviews, Pay to Play is a great read. Please keep up the reviews and also keep up the tweets and posts and emails. I love hearing about how the interviews with retired agents inspire, encourage, and educate you about the FBI. Thank you. Now here's the show.
1: I want to welcome my guest, Bill Dyson. Hi, Bill.
2: How are you doing today, Jerry?
1: I am doing great. I'm so excited to talk to you today because everybody talks about terrorism, and you know, we hear what's happening internationally, but you've worked with domestic terrorism.
2: Well, I spent a lot of time working on terrorism, about 30 years in my 31 and a half year career in the FBI. I worked on almost all the terrorist cases from the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and left the Bureau in the end of 1998. And at okay. the end of the career, a lot of the time was spent working on in international terrorism cases.
1: Before we get into that, if you could just give us a brief rundown of when you joined the FBI and why you wanted to be a special agent.
2: The FBI came to me. Oh. Uh, I really didn't know very much about the FBI. I was a school teacher down in Florida, and I had a master's degree, and I started getting credits towards a doctorate degree, and I really wasn't happy teaching. But I decided to have a career day for all of my students. I was also a guidance counselor, and one of the people I invited was an FBI agent, and he turned out to be the most popular speaker. Everybody wanted to come in and hear him, so I had to put him in the auditorium, and every student in the school came. But when he presented applications asking people to work for the FBI, primarily in Washington, D.C., they didn't want to do it. They didn't want to come back and be fingerprint uh, specialists and this type of thing. So I felt pretty bad afterwards, and I offered the FBI agent a cup of coffee, and I said, I'm sorry that no applications went. He said, well, how about you? And I said, well, I'm not really interested in being a clerk in the FBI headquarters working on fingerprints. He said, no, no, how about the special agent? And I didn't know I didn't know anything, but I agreed. I said, well, right, I'll submit an application. And as soon as I submitted the application, I immediately started getting every book I could out of the library by J. Edgar Hoover, figuring if I read that, I'd know what the FBI was about. And then I saw the FBI television show on Sunday evenings with Lou Erskine, and I religiously started watching that, figuring that's what the FBI is all about. And the application process went through, and uh, I was sent for testing, and I took the test, and he called the agent who recruited me. He says, well, you passed the test, now you go through a physical. I go through the physical, and next thing I know, he says, well, we've got an opening in an FBI class in another month. I said, well, I'm teaching school. I'm the high school senior class counselor. I can't leave until the end of the semester. Well, actually, end of the school year. He was calling me in October. So he said, well, how about uh, the beginning of the our new year, which will be the NAC number one in, 19, in 1967? And I said, well, all right, sounds good to me. And then I tell you, I was a nervous wreck. I didn't know what I got myself into. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know what the FBI did, and when I got into training class, I remember the first day. Everybody in the classroom there was 34 of us. All everybody introduced themselves, and I'm listening to these people, and these are people who I would call Mister and Sir. I mean, they were way above my working class type background. I, I had no idea. I mean, one the first person in the room was an aeronautical engineer. Then we had a doctor, an eye doctor, and there was CPAs, and I didn't know whether I fit in or not. But once I got out in the field, it just Sort of became natural. I loved it. It was the greatest thing in the world. And I go to church every week to thank God for what He gave me. It was a, that thirty-one and a half years flew by, and all of a sudden I'm in mandatory retirement. And they extended me for a year, and then I figured, well, now it's about time to leave. But it was a wonderful career. I loved it. I loved everybody in it, and I'll never say anything bad about the FBI. I love it. Great. I agree. So let's talk about the time when you were in the Chicago
1: field office and the work that you did there. So what
2: is this Al Rook organization? Al Rook, and that was one of many cases. I, as I said, I started working terrorism uh, very early in my career. I had first office duty in Detroit, then I was sent to Chicago, and almost immediately I ended up assigned to a squad. It wasn't called a terrorism squad because in those days we didn't refer to this in the late 1960s as terrorism. It was militancy, it was radical, revolutionary-type activity, anti-government. Terrorism was just one of a number of words for it. So I'm working on this extremist squad, and it primarily handled espionage. But extremism, when in Chicago, was assigned to that section of the house. Whereas in other divisions, it might have been assigned to the bank robbery squad or to some uh, criminal squad of uh, of another nature. But in either case, I'm starting to work on the Weather Underground case. That was my first case, and I eventually became the case agent on that. And uh, then we started working on FALN, the Puerto Rican terrorists, and I worked on right-wing extremists, the Nazi party, and all this type of thing. So now we come uh, into 1981, and a group of us created the Chicago Terrorist Task Force, Terrorism Task Force, and it and New York's terrorism task forces were the first task forces in the country. And And who was on the task force? Well, in Chicago, it was the Chicago Police Department and uh, the FBI, and the Illinois State Police, and also Secret Service, but they tried to keep it secret, <laughs> literally. They really they wanted to be a part of it, but they really didn't want to be known that they were part of this new entity. In fact, the task force was really, in many respects, sort of, it was from ground up. The management knew about it, but they didn't know about it. You know, it was sort of like, do your work, share your information, but don't really spread it around you are doing this type of thing. Why did
1: you feel it was necessary to create a task force?
2: Well, the fact of the matter was, one of the things we, first of all, none of us, none of the agencies had enough personnel to do the job right. We were working on the FALN, a Puerto Rican terrorist group, and we, there weren't enough agents really to do effective surveillance. The police department only had a sergeant and three agents, uh, 3 other investigative detectives. The state police only had two people. And when you started to try to do investigation, there really wasn't enough for us to do it, number one. And number two, we kept falling over each other. So as a result, one day we just decided just to have a meeting. And even though we're different agencies, we said, we got to work together. we got to team together. And there was a certain amount of information, which I'm not going to go into right now, but there was a certain amount of intelligence information that, when shared, really produced something. Mm. We could do something. And that was to eventually lead to the breaking of the FALN investigation. That was what the task force was founded to do. So in Chicago, we had this terrorism task force that handled the FALN, wiped out a lot of their leadership, and then immediately the management of all the agencies said, well, you guys did this so well, you've learned how to investigate terrorism, and you're doing this so well, you're working so well, can't you do anything else? Is there anything else out there that's terrorist? And we started falling over all sorts of cases. There was a lot of terrorism. Chicago's a major city, and there's a lot of terrorism information to be developed. So back so when we come up to the Sal Rukin organization, this is late 1985, this comes to our attention, and unlike most other FBI divisions, there is a, an established entity that can tackle this investigation. It could have happened in New York, it could have happened in New England, but other places, there wouldn't have been an effective squad that could have jumped right onto a case like this.
1: So are you saying that the Chicago uh, Terrorism Task Force was one of the first?
2: It was one of the first, yes. Now, New York claims they're first. We try to claim we're first, but basically, essentially, the same time, 1981.
1: We're making the assumption that everybody listening knows what the FALN is. So why don't we, before we move on to the Rukan, why don't we clear that up first? Who You, you were saying that you were successful in
2: investigating the FALN. That's Who is that? The FALN is a Puerto Rican independence organization. And it's not the only one. There were other independence organizations, some of which did violent attacks that were on the island of Puerto Rico. This one was different. It was inside the United States, and the objective was to liberate Puerto Rico. And to do that, they were going to attack within what they call the belly of the beast. In other words, they were going to attack from within the United States as opposed to doing attacks in Puerto Rico. And the idea was to free Puerto Rico, make it a free country. And this group... Uh, over a period of about 10 years, did around 120 bombing attacks in the United States. And most of them were in New York City or Chicago, some in Washington, D.C., I think one in New Jersey, and a couple in Puerto Rico, but mostly in the United States, and they were quite effective. They were the terrorist group, if you want to call it that, during the 1970s and early 1980s.
1: Well, definitely, I'm going to you know, have to look into that particular case, Later on, I, I think you've put me in touch with the case agent, and so we'll explore more deeply the FALN. But right now, you know, it, it sounds like you were successful. The, the, one of the Bureau's goals in terrorism cases and any type of organization um, case is to disrupt and dismantle. And I take it FALN doesn't exist anymore, that you were successful in disrupting and dismantling it.
2: Well, yes and no. First of all, it does not exist today, that's true, and the fact that we were able to give it a blow that had never been uh, done before to these people did not eliminate them. They continued to exist. In fact, we were to end up with another major case in 1985 against the FLN, and the organization continued to do some more attacks. But the fact of the matter is this is the first time, this is a clandestine organization, and there was questions as to who was even in it. And then when we establish who is in it, then where are they? How can we find them? And how can we find where their bomb factory is? And we did. We were able to identify certain members, uh, took tremendous hours of investigation. That's how we basically learned, we in Chicago, the terrorist task force, that learned how to investigate terrorism. And it's different. It's different than than normal criminal investigations. You use a lot of the techniques, but they use a little bit differently. And we learned through the FALN. We found There are members. We identified their cadre in Chicago. We were able to follow them. We found their safe house. We found their bomb factory. We were able to get a camera into their bomb factory. We were able to get microphones in there. And we basically caught them in the act. Wow. Now, this didn't eliminate them. There was was a bomb. There was a cell in New York, and they did the attacks, and it was a little bit more difficult for them to be found there in New York. But we were able to identify a lot of the members, and eventually uh, many of the members are in jail.
1: What you learned from investigating the F.A.L.N., you were able to use that, those skills, those techniques, those resources, in order to go after the Al Rukin organization. So tell me
2: more about them. Well, we're talking about the end of 1985. At that particular time, the terrorist task force is working on another F.A.L.N. conspiracy, namely the one to break Oscar Lopez out of prison. And that was to be a major investigation that resulted in two top ten fugitives being identified and so forth. But I'm not going to go into that right now. We were also working on another case that involved an effort by a group of people in the United States to overthrow a South American country. And they were gathering weapons and expertise and so forth, and we were able to take them down. But that was all going on when we get information from our narcotics squad in Chicago seems that at that point, in late 1985, there was a major narcotics investigation involving the O'rookin Street Gang, which is really a criminal conspiracy. They say street gang, but that's really deceptive. It was a criminal conspiracy of, of adults, primarily. And they were handled narcotics. They controlled narcotics from the south side and the west side of Chicago. There was a major investigation, and it was a joint operation between the Chicago Police Department, ATF, and the FBI, and maybe a couple of other smaller agencies. And they were investigating them, and they had a wiretap on the Al Rukin organization and they started to pick up some strange things on this wiretap and it had to do with the Libyan government some type of meetings with the Libyans and some type of conspiracy and it really it had nothing to do with narcotics and yet it was weird it was strange so they brought that information to the Chicago Terrorism Task Force who said that's the type of thing that sounds like it could be something on the first when I mean, you look at it it sounds fantastic the Libyan government is trying to somehow have contact with a street gang on the south side of Chicago? and So yeah. it seems a little bit, you know, it, it, it doesn't sound realistic. However, when you stand back and you look at it a little bit further, you find out what was going on at that particular time. This was a time when there was a real, um, well, what we want to say? There was, the Reagan administration was very uh, upset with the Libyan government especially the fact that the Libyan government was supporting uh, Palestinian extremists trying to destroy Israel, but also supporting uh, the IRA, the Red Army Faction, the Red Brigades, and things like this. And the United States was very concerned about Libya being used as a training base for these various international terrorist groups. So it sounded logical that Libya might want to attack the United States. And in fact, there was an attack, not against the United States, but against innocent people, that was to occur a few months later that was to be relevant to this, and that was the April 5, 1986 attack on the LaBelle nightclub in West Berlin, Germany, in which three people were killed, including a United States serviceman, and 225 people were wounded, injured in this bombing. And that was done by Libyan agents. So this is a concern for you. You're not no, sure what's going very, on. Mm-hmm. This, but when you stop thinking, al rukin and Libyan... Now all of a sudden you say, maybe the Libyans, maybe this is legitimate. Maybe this isn't just some sort of a code name that's misunderstood or something. Maybe the Libyans really are upset because, I mean, we'll do do something. And then you start saying, well, if the Libyans wanted to attack the United States, how would they do it? Well, they certainly couldn't send an army over there, over to any place we were. Their navy was minimal. They had practically no air force. So how would you attack? Well, you could do it through terrorism. Well, if you wanted to attack in the United States, how were you going to do it? There were very few Libyans living in the United States, and most of the ones that lived here had left Libya because they were forced out. They certainly weren't going to be fifth columnists that, the, uh, that could be used by the Libyan government. So as a result, how would you do it? And there had been intelligence developed that the Libyans were reaching out to dissidents in the United States for support. And I'm not going to mention some of the entities they reached out to because they weren't successful. But they reached out to certain people... A certain groups that they thought were anti-government, and it didn't succeed. But somehow, they did reach the Rukans and they came to the conclusion maybe they could help them. So, wow. if you look at that from that standpoint, that maybe it isn't so outlandish to believe that the Libyans could contact the Arucans. The question is, why would they pick the Arucans, a street gang from Chicago? Well, there's a lot of reasons for it. And one of the reasons is because they're not really a street gang. By the time that the, the Rukans are being in contact with the Libyans, they're a crime syndicate. They're like the mafia. This is, And they're not children. I mean, we're talking about leadership that's in their 30s, 40s, 50 years old. we I mean, in their 50s, well into their 50s. So as a result, uh, we're, we're, it's, it's deceptive to refer to them as a street gang. And when you start looking at them as a crime syndicate, then you start looking at why they exist, and it's to make money. It's power. It's money. So if the Libyan government was willing to pay a lot of money, would the O'Rookans bite on it? And the answer would be, yeah, when you start looking at the O'Rookans' background, they would bite on it. We have to look a little bit at who, who the O'Rookans are, because a lot of people have no idea who they are. I mean, the name doesn't, it sounds weird. Yeah, so are they operating primarily in the Chicago area? Yes, it goes way back, uh, well, into the 70s. There was a guy by the name of Jeff Fort, F-O-R-T. And Jeff Ford is a very charismatic person who has a lot of leadership. He was born in Mississippi back in 1947, but he came to Chicago very early, and he was raised. He was raised in the uh, uh, Woodlawn neighborhood of Chicago on the south side. It was a mixed neighborhood. Uh, he specifically, uh, his residence was on South Black, Blackstone Avenue. And he gets involved very early as a child, a teenager, in a group that he helps create called the Blackstone Rangers. And those days, every street, it seemed to me, in many parts of Chicago, had their own gang. So if you live in Jones Street, you might be the Jones Street gang or something like that. And they all were protecting their hood, their territory, their neighborhood. And they would do, you know, they'd all join together and they'd threaten each other and um, threaten people and they would do some minor crimes and this type of thing. Well, Jeff Fort formulates this group. And he also has a, an older section of the group. So there's a younger section that Jeff leads, and then there's an older section, people in their 20s and 30s that are connected with it, and they're led by a guy by the name of Eugene Hairston, also known as Bull Hairston. So we have two leaders of this Blackstone Rangers, except when uh, uh, these two guys, uh, Harrison and uh, Fort, they see the silliness, Of the streets battling each other. They say if we can all join together in some type of confederation, we can really have a powerhouse down here and we might be able to get, you know, do robberies, burglaries, extortions, and this type of thing and be much more effective. So they get together with a bunch of other street gangs and they form a new group called the Black Pea Stone Nation. And P is initial P, but it stands for peace. Black Pea Stone Nation.
1: Doesn't sound like the activities that they were planning had anything to do with the word peace.
2: Had nothing to do, well, nothing to do with peace and nothing to do with terrorism either. But they had a main assembly of 21 leaders, but the Blackstone Rangers were in charge, and basically it was Harrison. Except very shortly after they formed this thing, Harrison gets arrested and gets sent to prison. So now Jeff Ford, a much younger person than Harrison, takes over, and he is in charge of this. But is this guy, he's really intelligent. And what Ford does is he somehow decides he's going to try to defraud the U.S. government. So he convinces certain people, politicians and so forth, that if the federal government will give him something like a million dollars, that he can get a thing to help youth. He can get uh, uh, food for youth and training for youth and uh, job training and this type of stuff. And he gets a government grant. Now, this is a, a gang. Wow. Black Peace Nation has got a, a government grant. Well, needless to say, he didn't do what he was supposed to do. And no. <laughs> and he eventually gets himself arrested and thrown into prison in the early 1970s. And, and when I say arrested, I don't mean local. I mean federal penitentiary. He goes to Leavenworth. And he's in there for about five years or so, at least that's what his sentence is, for fraud against the government. While in prison, he converts to Islam. He meets people and he converts to Islam. Now, there are some people who say that this was done for favoritism. Like, for example, if he is an Islam, a Muslim, he could claim he has a special diet. He could get special food. He could have special meetings that were religious services so that nobody could come in and listen to what he was saying to people. Now, I don't know whether that's true or not, but there's been allegations of some people who go to prison who convert to a religion, particularly Islam. They do it for reasons other than true belief. But regardless, we'll assume he is a true believer. Anyway, he gets out of prison. And, and keep in mind, while he's in prison, he's still leading this group. He's leading the Black Stone donation in prison by telephone. From prison he's got this charismatic personality. Anyway, he gets out of prison in 1976 and he gets back in leadership, now an official leadership of the uh, Black Peace So nation and he declares them to be Muslim. Now, he oh, so he's going to have nation. the
1: whole he's going to have the whole criminal syndicate now, now converted. Now
2: they're all Muslim okay. and he changes their name. He takes a name that's from Arabic for foundation. And his word is El Rukin. They are now going to call themselves the El Rukins. And they are Muslims. Somehow that's going to make them more legitimate in their criminal activities. Wow. Anyway, so now you have this going on. In 1978, two years later, uh, he decides we need a headquarters. So keep in mind, uh, where's this guy getting all his money? Well, (laughs) through narcotics sales and various things like this. But I don't know. It's all alleged. But anyway, he gets enough money that his group is able to buy a huge building. It was an old movie theater, the Oakland Square Theater. And it had closed, and he buys this huge building, and he declares that the headquarters for the Al Rukins, and also it's a mosque. And if you go into the building, I've been in the building, but I wasn't in there when they were praying, but I was in their mosque. And if you took pictures of that area uh, and put it out, uh, people would disagree. It, It looked like it could be a mosque. Uh, They had prayer rugs down and so forth. I never saw I was never in there when they were worshipping, so I don't know how many people came to worship or when they worshipped or anything else. But I've seen the facility, and yes, that part of the theater could be, you could assume that it was a mosque. It was made to look like a mosque. And maybe they did pray there. I don't know. But the rest of
1: the facility...
2: The rest of the facility is meeting rooms and storage places and, you know, places where people, I guess, could live overnight or something of that nature. But it's a huge old building. In fact, they call the building the Fort. Jeff Fort Leader, the Fort is what this structure was known as. That's the headquarters for the Orukans. Well, Jeff's still doing his narcotics dealing. And in 1983, he gets arrested again by the feds, this time for narcotics. And he gets a 13-year prison sentence, and he's sent down to Bastrop, Texas, to the federal prison down there. Now, you would think this would end it. He's has gone. He's still leading the organization. Now it's called the Al Rookins, but he's still leading. He's on the phone constantly. And the drug trafficking still goes on. And, of course, the federal government becomes aware of this. And that's when the Chicago Police Department and the FBI uh, and ATF got together formed a joint investigation to try to take down the Arucans on drugs because they pretty much control the drug trafficking in the south and west side of Chicago and also in other places, but primarily in Chicago.
1: And so this is when they initiate their Title III, their wiretap.
2: They have their wiretap going on, and they come up with this information. They turn this aspect of the investigation over to the terrorist task force, who in turn gets their wiretap. And now the investigation begins, and as I said, the task force now knew how to investigate terrorism. It's a little bit different, but they've got a, a, a gang flavor mixed in with this because these people are not trained terrorists, but they're work, working in conjunction with a terrorist country. So we see some of the things that they're doing. First of all, the whole El Rukin gang, all the whole membership, is not aware of what's going on here. This is the leadership. And the conspiracy basically is with the Libyan government. The Libyan government is going to give them allegedly a million, two million dollars to do terrorist attacks in the United States, and they're talking about possibly taking down an airliner at O'Hare Field. So we
1: and the Al Rukn leadership knew the what leadership. their
2: purpose was and were well, in. We, we get the purpose that that what they're trying to do. They're going to take money from the Libyans to do a terrorist attacks in the United States. But the membership itself, the street membership, they probably knew nothing about what was going on, or mm-hmm. if they did it was just very minimal knowledge. But the leadership's going to do this, and they're going to get big money for this. But the problem is they really don't know that much about doing terrorist attacks. I mean, it's, the, the Al Wilkins probably killed more people than Al Capone did. I mean, there's no problem. They could kill somebody on the street. They could shoot them. They could stab him, They could beat them up. But when it comes to doing a terrorist attack that's going to get worldwide attention, I mean, they really didn't know how to do that. But they were willing to take the money to try it. So now they're starting to think about how are we going to do this and what are we going to do? And we're listening to their wiretap, and their wiretap was all that their talk was in code. And it was a very simple code, yet it was complex. It was simple because they had different words for different meanings for the words they would say. For example, if they might say apple, that might refer to a gun. If they said pineapple, that might refer to a bomb. Well, that's simple enough. If you'd learn what the words meant, then you'd know you'd understand them. The problem was they had different sections of the code. So if you were to, if they were talking on the telephone. They would say, "In the science of pickles, let's talk about apples," and that would mean apples would be guns. But if they changed it and said, "In the science of grapefruit," then that apple would mean perhaps a meeting. In wow. other words, it depended upon the science of.
1: Like a, it was almost like a two-part code. It was probably
2: about a ten-part. Wow. <laughs> and you had to know what the science was and what the words meant. Well, we had some pretty good people in the task force that were pretty good in languages and codes. And we had one, one particular FBI agent. I don't know what it was. He was sort of a, a real talent in languages. And he starts listening to the wiretaps and putting things together. And pretty soon he got to the point where he could talk in code. He could talk better than the leadership could. Wow. In fact, he ended up as one of the witnesses in court. When it came time to prosecute these people, they had to play the uh, tapes. And then he had to interpret what the tapes meant because they're all in code. And he was able to do it. And, of course, by that time we had turned some members of the group who also knew the code and could uh, also describe what it was. But... We had to do these type of things. We had to do the wiretap. We had to do surveillances. We had to develop performance and all this sort of stuff. As we're coming up with the investigation, as we're coming up with information investigation, we're beginning to discover what is going on between the Libyans and the uh, al And it seems that there was a man who uh, was actually a sort of a college professor. He's a more uh, refined man who had been involved in various Black extremist groups in the United States, including the Black Panther Party, but really wasn't a member at any point, and he wasn't a member of the Alrukins. But he was sort of a more refined person. Somehow, he had contact with the Libyan government, and he's the one who proposed the Alrukins. Oh, so he was and like the
1: the go-between. He
2: was sort of like the intermediary.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And he, but he's not really a member of the Alrukins. But he had a law degree, but he never passed the bar exam. So what he would do is he would travel down to Boustra prison as a lawyer, Jeff fourth lawyer, and have private meetings with him. Uh, (laughs) Well, that's illegal. You can't do that. Eventually, he was arrested. We had him arrested, and uh, he was convicted of making false statements, a federal charge, and uh, was sent to prison in 1987. But that's sort of a sideline right now. Earlier, he's making the liaison, and he's convincing the Libyans that this al Rukin group not only is capable of doing things, and not only they can do you yes, they have to do criminal activities, but they're good religious people. And he's convincing them that they're true Muslims. The Libyans, I guess, had no really way of knowing it. In fact, one of the early people that uh, this man, Charles Knox, was able to send over to Libya was a man named Rico Cranshaw. Now, Rico was an older member of the uh, Al-Ruqans. He was in his 50s. And he went over there, and they presented him as one of the emirs, E-M-I-R, emir of the Orukans. In other words, he was one of their religious leaders. And and was he a practicing, did he really practice Islam? I would be shocked if he did. I don't know that he didn't, but he certainly, I'm I'm not aware of him being trained in religion in any way. Now, of course, Sunni Muslims don't go, It's not like Shia, Shia Muslims who, who have more formal training. So I, I can't say, I, as far as I know, he didn't have formal training. But that's the way he was presented, this idea of, this is not just a bunch of criminals over here. These are religious people. You can trust them for that reason.
1: And I guess, and the, the bottom line is, the Libyans really didn't care anyway. <laughs> they just wanted somebody to do their bidding, to, to, to be able to do what they needed them to do back in the U.S.
2: That's probably true, but the fact that they could play the religion angle made them feel a little bit better. Or maybe they felt they could trust them a little bit better. Because after all, it's not that the Libyan government, Muammar Gaddafi, had personal knowledge of what Americans were like. It's not like they have been educated in America or anything of that nature. Anyway, uh, we subsequently end up with a meeting in Panama in May of 1986 in which uh, uh, this cranshaw, Rico Cranshaw and Liam McAnderson go down and meet with the Libyans down there. there that is monitored. That meeting meeting is monitored. It was not wiretapped, but it was monitored. And certain materials were found on their persons when they came back in the country, but it was not, uh, you know, routine customs type thing. So they didn't really realize that what was found was used so against them, so to speak. And we start coming up with information...
1: What that, kind of things? What kind of things well, were found these on
2: papers them. reflecting that there were meetings. Let's put it that way. It verified okay. there were meetings. Anyway, we got the wiretap going, and we're coming up with information now that the al at this point are now looking for weapons. Not just the guns, the handguns. They're looking for heavy weapons. They're looking for explosives. They're looking for grenades. They're looking for things that they can use to do a major terrorist attack. Well, when you start doing that... That means you're open to uh, in police agencies helping them along, so to speak. Right. If you know about it. So what happened here is once we knew about it, then what we did was we started dangling people out there, people that would have weapons that maybe they could see and go to. And one of them was an informant uh, who had been around from, in the drugs, nothing to with terrorism, and he basically... Um, put the word out one way or another that he did have a buddy that had access to sort of military things and so forth. And one thing led to another, and and eventually Alan Knox, who's one of the leading members of the uh, L. Rookins, approached him and said, well, what about this? Well, I got this guy, and he has a friend who's in a military base and so forth and so on, and meetings are arranged, and this friend, of course, is an undercover FBI agent. Of course. And he meets with them, and he says, well, look, I, I don't really have weapons. But... I have this buddy down in Kentucky, he's in the military, He's uh, he's got access to the weapons, he's, he's in, uh, in supplies or something like that. Uh, he's one of these guys, he just doesn't care. He wants money. You want to buy something from the military, he'll steal it and sell it to you, and he doesn't care who you are. He doesn't even want to know who you are. Well, that sounds like ideal for, as far as the were concerned. So there's telephone calls going back and forth with Jeff Fort and so forth, and finally they decide, well, we got to test this guy out. We'll try to make a buy from him. So they start talking about what type of weapons, and the weapon they are proposing is an M-72 light anti-tank weapon, which is known as LAW. It's an anti-tank rocket. Oh, Wow. And so what are they going
1: to – this is what they're going to use to take an airplane out of the sky?
2: It, uh, that could be it, – they had the theory that it could be done that way. They weren't sure. I don't think they were positive what they were going to do with it, but they knew what it would do. It would take a tank out. And this is a type of weapon that is an ideal thing for an undercover operation. And the reason I say that is because it's disposable. It's, it's, it's disposable. I mean, you shoot it and it's done. It comes in a frame. A wooden, it's, a, it's a metal tube, and the rocket's in there, and you hold it in your shoulder, and you push the trigger, and it shoots out, and then you throw the tube away. I mean, it's, so, it's over with. So, oh, so they, they, can't it. It. they can't test it. You can't test it without oh, using it. Oh, okay. And so it's an ideal thing that uh, has been used in other investigations as well.
1: We, Whose idea was it for the M-72 uh, light anti-tank weapon? Was it our idea or did you they know, come up with it? And you
2: say, oh, yeah, that's a good one. They described it. Okay. I don't think they knew the name, but they described it. They've they seen it used in a movie so they okay. describe what they want. Okay. And now we know what they want. So now we are presenting the fact that we can get it. And they're talking about they want night vision glasses and they want bulletproof vest and things of this nature as well. But the discussion basically comes down to this particular thing, this particular weapon, and the Americans are careful. Jeff Ford is one of these people. You be careful, you know. This could be some sort of a sting. This could be a ripoff. This God knows what it could be. So be careful. Be careful with our money and so forth. So now they trusted
1: the Libyans because they actually had flown out and met with them both in Libya and in Panama.
2: Yes, they had no reason to believe that the Libyans weren't truthful.
1: So they knew that wasn't a setup. What they thought could be a setup was yeah, that the a setup. person the who was going to sell them.
2: Okay. Well, the person that's going to sell them, they, they don't know who these people are. They're not fellow gang members. And the, and the, and the weapon, the, the undercover agent, is getting it from a friend of his. So it's even third party there. So mm-hmm. they, they're very careful. And there's, there's a lot of talking back and forth about what do we buy and how do we buy and how do we exchange the money and when are we going to meet and where are we going to meet and all this sort of stuff and no, we're not going to drive down to Kentucky to pick up any weapon, and you're going to have to bring it up here, and all this type of thing. Eventually, it comes to the point, they make a decision. There's going to be a meeting of a person transferring this law rocket to them on July 31st of 1986. And this is going to happen at the Holiday Inn in Lansing, Illinois. Now, that is south of Chicago. It's maybe 50 miles south of Chicago, the city limits of Chicago. It's on Route 80. Major highway. It's a sort of a sprawling Holiday Inn. It's no longer a Holiday Inn, but in those days it was a sprawling Holiday Inn. A lot of people passing through and so forth. Uh, So agreement was they rent a room, they make a telephone call they say what room to come to and so forth. Well, obviously, we went down and rented all the rooms we could. And we didn't tell them FBI or police department. We just rented rooms individually. So we had the room. The meeting was supposed to take place. And, of course, we had the room next to it, and the room on the other side, the room across the hall. And, I mean, we had it. There's separate buildings. There's rooms around it. We had an airplane up. And uh, we had it pretty well covered. I remember when we set the room up, one of the things I did, there was a hostess bakery not too far away. And they sold uh, day-old bread type of thing. I, I just stopped in and I grabbed a hold of of, of things like uh, little pies, little pies and cupcakes and muffins and so forth. I brought them and scattered them in the apartment. I think the guys thought I was crazy. What do you think? We're hungry, waiting for this guy. I said, No, no, just leave them. And sure enough, one of the guys came and touched. One of the bad guys came and touched one of them. Left a yeah. fingerprint. <laughs> and that was the idea. You, you want fingerprints. You want to be able to verify. Anyway, the meeting takes place on time, and who shows up but Alan Knox, who was a man, the uh, Rukin leader who made the arrangements, and another man named Melvin Mays, M-A-Y-S, Melvin Mays. Now, Melvin Mays was regarded as one of their munitions people. Now, how much training he had, I don't really know. He wasn't a veteran or anything. I don't know why they felt that he was such an expert on weapons, but he had to come. So those okay. two arrived, and negotiations take place. The cost was that had been agreed upon. They brought the money. They gave them the money. The law rocket was exchanged between the undercover agent and this other stranger that came up from Kentucky. They changed the weapon. They put it in a gym bag, and they walk out the door. And instead of putting the weapon in their car, they walk over to another car that's out there. And that's being driven by a guy by the name of Hawkins, Roosevelt Hawkins. And he's a younger El Rukin person, and he may or may not have known exactly what was going on. They handed him the, the gym bag; he puts it in the car, and he takes off. And so, when Mays and Knox get in their car, they've got no guilty ev- 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 evidence in it. So, if there was a takedown, there wouldn't have been any weapon in there. Well,
1: well let me I'm, ask you this, and yeah. I, I think I know the answer to this, but I take it that it's, it's inert. It's, it's
2: okay. You know they're not. You know they're not going to test it, but it. it it's not I, I, the, that's a good point. The the weapon is inert in one way in the sense it won't fire, but it's also got a beacon in it. Now, but we're talking about the 80s now, uh, which is not the way it is today where you can monitor anything. But they had built in a monitor in that so the airplane and cars could follow it. Okay. But it, so it but the weapon So, was not this,
1: fire. so they've they handed a, it off to this other guy and you already had that covered because you
2: know it's beeping away telling you exactly
1: where
2: it's going? We can the only problem is that Roosevelt Hawkins' car broke down before he even got to the Chicago City Limits. <laughs> so As a result, Knox, Knox and Mays had to go back and take the weapon and put it in their car. And then they take it up to Chicago to an apartment on South Kenwood Street. And this was an apartment building. It was literally run by the O'Rookins. And they put it in there. And we subsequently found out what they did was they had a compartment built under a staircase, and they stuck it in there. Well, at that particular point, now we've got them. We've got enough information that we can arrest them. So we're preparing indictments and so forth. But we're also continuing the investigation. And before you know it, Fort, uh, they contact Fort. Alan Knox and the gang contact Fort and let them know what happened and everything. And Fort says, well, it looks like it's all right. You know, nobody got arrested. Nothing like that. Nobody's following you. No, everything was perfect. Good. All right. Call them up and buy some hand grenades. So cool. Knox calls the UC and says, now I need another ha- a dozen hand grenades. So in other words, it looks like everything is going fine. Well, at that particular point, we decided to take it down. So on August the 5th, massive raid. We've got probably hundreds of people involved in this between the police department, marked cars and unmarked cars, the task force, the SWAT teams and so forth. And we go into the Kenwood apartment where we find not only the law rocket, but when we go into this compartment, there's automatic weapons, there's hand grenades, (laughs) various other things. This is part of their arsenal, overall arsenal. And we go into the fort and we arrest Alan Knox. But Melvin Mays, we can't find him. We subsequently found that apparently this huge uh, theater building was somehow interconnected with some of the neighboring buildings. And he must have snuck through some tunnel or something in the basement. And he gets away and allegedly goes to Canada and then to Libya and then ultimately comes back to Chicago and it took us a long while. Melvin Mays was an FBI top ten fugitive for years, but finally we arrested him on March ninth, nineteen ninety five. And oh, wow! So for nine years he was gone for a long time. But we finally got enough information to get him. And I remember the arrest was it was an amazing thing. He was staying in a small apartment in a maybe a four story building. Actually, he was on the fourth floor. I think the building was five or six stories high on the near south side of Chicago, not down near where the fort was or anything like that, but much further up, closer to downtown. We got the information where he was, and we surrounded the place, and we set up a command center and a building adjacent to it. And I remember I was sitting in the command center, and we had a female person uh, who was a hostage negotiator come in. And this, guy, this woman was absolutely fantastic. She calls on the phone, and she says, Hello, Melvin. Because <laughs> he's living under a false ID and everything else, he says, "Melvin, uh, this is the FBI calling, the Chicago Police Department calling. Uh, we know who you are. We know where you are. If you look out your window, you'll see you're surrounded. There's police cars all over the place. Now here's your instructions: You are to remove all weapons. You are to come to the door. You are to open the door and lay down." <laughs> I mean, wow! It was it was like the it was a, a absolutely amazing. I'm sitting right next to us. I don't believe this. It was like a mother talking to a child, saying, "You know, come in." In here, sit down, do your homework.
1: And did he obey her? He did
2: obey it. And he came out, he had no weapon, but we figured he had to have a weapon. So we searched the, the small apartment, and one of the guys goes into uh, one of the kitchen cabinets, and there's a big it's various items of food, including a big canister of oatmeal. He picks up the canister and almost drops it. He says, "This something. This isn't right." And in the oatmeal was an automatic weapon.
1: Mm-hmm. So
2: that's way. In other words, she said, "Don't come. Don't bring a weapon out." And he just jammed in the oatmeal. But anyway, so we got got Melvin Mays ultimately. Uh, but in terms, uh, and, and he eventually gets convicted and sent to prison for most of his life. He, he probably will not get out. As far as the other people are concerned, uh, ultimately, they get arrested. But ultimately, the big thing is on April 1st of 1987, there's a 50-count federal indictment that charges the key leadership. And uh, they get convicted on November the 24th of 1987. Uh, They tried to defend themselves. They claimed, yeah, we were dealing with the Libyans, but we wanted them to give us money so we could build a big mosque. Well, the jury didn't buy it. What, what are they going to, they were trying to claim
1: that it was a a con, that they were going to take the money, but they weren't going to actually do anything.
2: No, what they were claiming to do, they claimed they were talking to the the Libyans in an effort to get money from the Libyans so that they could build a big mosque in Chicago.
1: Oh, so they were denying that there was
2: even a conspiracy to do terror. Oh, yeah, they were trying to defend themselves by saying they were trying to build a mosque. Well, the jury didn't buy it. And and you, and you had you had tapes too, right? Oh yeah, we had the tape. We had uh, surveillance. We had uh, because of the evidence. We had the law a rocket and so forth. So yeah, we had them. There, there was no question they were going to get convicted, but at least they tried to defend themselves. In other words, they didn't roll <laughs> over and, and plead guilty.
1: <laughs> they tried.
2: And so then we come up Jeff Fort, who's still in prison, but is tried. Uh, he gets another eighty years. Wow. Now four he was forty years old at the time, so eighty years plus he already was in prison, uh, he's never going to get out.
1: Right, and this is, this is a federal sentence, and so you're going to do most of that time, so it's a life sentence basically for
2: him. Pretty much so, although I don't know in, in 1987 whether it, was, whether, he did, whether it was automatic he did the whole sentence or not.
1: Okay, okay. I think
2: that came later on, but in either case, he's going to spend most of his life in prison, if not all of it. And Rico Cranshaw, uh, he was 56 years old when he was sentenced. He got 63 years. So you see, these people are not kids. Alan Knox was 35 years old and got 54 years in prison. Okay. And Leon McAnderson was 37 and got 51 years in prison. And Roosevelt Hawkins, who was much younger, 24, he got nine years in prison. And for okay. all I know, he may be out by now. So did
1: anybody from Libya, was, were they charged? No. Um, no. no nobody and, why, and, why,
2: and why was that? I don't think they felt that, well, first of all, they couldn't bring him into the country to try him. Well, that that doesn't necessarily stop us from charging somebody. No, it could be done. It just wasn't done. I can't really explain. Maybe we didn't know, maybe we didn't have enough evidence to get a specific person. Like, uh, would you charge Muammar Gaddafi? Okay. Uh, We assume he was behind it directly. But, for example, when they went over to Libya, I'm not sure that we knew exactly who they met with. Mm.
1: Okay, yeah, I could see how the it would be difficult to charge an individual and, you know, it would be impossible to charge, you know, a country. You couldn't
2: charge the country, and in the case of Panama, we knew a meeting took place, and we knew who was at the meeting. We did know who the Panamanian people were, but we didn't know what was said at the meeting. Mm. But we do know when they came back from the meeting, they started talking about weaponry. Okay. So you didn't have enough to charge them there. As far as I know, it was the first time that Americans were convicted of conspiring to make, commit a terrorist act in the United States on behalf of a foreign government in exchange for money. Wow. It's
1: absolutely uh, amazing. I don't know, and maybe I did read about this at the time, but this is pretty fascinating.
2: Well, it, it, uh, well Melvin Mays, for example, uh, we were on America's Most Wanted with him probably four times at least, maybe five times. So that got a lot of publicity also when he was on there because he usually did a pretty good segment. In fact, they had a very good reenactment of the case. And, you know, it's only a 15-minute segment, maybe a 10-minute segment on America's Most Wanted. And they would interview me about what what he was charged with and that type of thing. That's why I know personally about it. And he was featured in other stories as well.
1: And what's really fascinating about this is that I did a podcast interview about the Lockerbie bombing that oh, yeah. Libya... And that's about the same period of time, um, 1988. And so they weren't, yeah, so they weren't successful with this doing something, an act in the United States. So then they moved to do something against Americans overseas.
2: Yes, yes. Wow. That that was a fascinating case. But basically, this case essentially neutralized the Arrukans. Now, this is not to say it ended them, because this is a very, very, fairly group, a fairly big group and so forth. But uh, what happened is that the the drug investigation started this thing. It continues, despite the fact that we are taking out the top leadership and so forth. The drug investigation continues, and in 1991, there was massive grand jury indictments against, well, they couldn't indict the same people that we'd already thrown in prison, but other people. And mm-hmm. they really pretty much wiped out the Alwukins and then the city seized the fort the the old movie theater and, and tore it down so it doesn't oh, really? do that any longer wow to have a, a drug gang and you
1: said you know be better to to describe them as a criminal syndicate or a yeah, criminal they, enterprise
2: they, yeah couldn't uh, that's basically what it was instead of a drug gang
1: to have them to be working with foreign government to do damage in the United States is absolutely amazing so what was it that, did they have a plan? Did you ever hear of the actual plan? If they had been able to get all of these hand grenades and rocket, what was it that they were going to actually do? And who would be their target?
2: We really didn't know. We, we had talk. That it might be an airliner at O'Hare Field, but in terms of specifics, they didn't get to that point. They were getting, they were gathering the material to do it, but we never—I don't think—I'm not aware of that we ever came to the point where we knew specifically the it was not like the FALN. The FALN, we knew specific targets that they were going to take down when we arrested them. They were going after a National Guard facility. We knew that, and we knew we had to stop it. In this particular case, we did not know the exact target.
1: Well, thank goodness that they didn't get much further. Uh, than they did by the time you found out about it and were be- and were able to uh, to intervene
2: it was it was a blessing that this came up this, If this narcotics investigation hadn 't been going on, we would never have known it and uh-huh. God knows what would happen, what they would have bombed or what they would have attacked we, we just don 't know, so it was a blessing that the narcotics investigation was going on. It was a blessing the narcotics investigators realized that there was something other than narcotics being discussed here. And it was a blessing that we had a terrorist task force of skilled people who could come right in, pick up the investigation, and run with it the proper way. Knew how to do it.
1: Absolutely.
2: So you're telling me about this terrorist task
1: force. Now, are you one of the members, or are you supervising?
2: I was the supervisor of the Chicago Terrorist Task Force, so I was the overall supervisor on this case involving the O'Roukans. But I want to make it clear, I was not the case agent. I was not the person who did the surveillances or listened to the wiretaps and so forth. I did get involved in this case more intricately than perhaps a supervisor would normally do it. I am a bomb technician, so as a result, I, I had certain reasons to be close to the investigation when it dealt with explosives and that type of thing. Uh, and But I want to make it clear, there's a number of people that deserve Uh, being saluted for this case. But like many people in the terrorist task force, we just don't take credit for what we do. Uh, The Overall, the special agent in charge of the office or the head of the police department, they talk about it and they take the credit for the agency. But in terms of uh, me, I don't want you to believe that I ran this case. There was some very, very fine agents and fine police officers uh, that did wonderful work in this case and they deserve all the credit.
1: I take it that after this case, you continued to work terrorism cases?
2: When did ter- you retire? Yeah. Well, I retired the last day of 1998, but the terrorist task force continued on. It still continues on. And there was, it was like it never ended, case after case after case, that we came up with. Uh, some major, some uh, lesser, some well-publicized, some not well-publicized. And they were in all sorts of areas. It wasn't just in international, not in just the domestic, but it was in everything. Uh, the Chicago Terrorist Task Force investigated anything. and We had everything from right-wing extremism to left-wing extremism to national extremism. We had everything. And the task force continued on uh, after I left, after I left for retirement. Uh, it continues on today. It's much larger than when I was there. So I was a supervisor for 14 years. Oh, okay. All right. We had, what do we have? Uh, I believe the total complement was 46 investigators. Wow. Mm. Plus, wow. we also had, you know, clerical workers and, and an analysts and, and various off-sites and so forth. I mean, it was it was quite an operation, but you need an operation like that to do that because there's certain things you do in terrorism that's a little bit different than you would do in other investigations.
1: And of those investigators, what percentage were agents? What percentage were Chicago PD?
2: Usually, the largest contingent was FBI agents, but probably not more than maybe 17 or 18 <laughs> Chicago Police was next in terms of numbers, and then the State Police after that. Then, as time went on, we started adding other agencies into it. Just about anybody that was interested uh, uh, that was interested in terrorism would be added into it. We we had a, various federal agencies that would do. Things that were maybe not overall in terrorism, but would have aspects of terrorism. And that's one of the things true all over the United States. Like, for example, in in a Western area, you might have game wardens involved in it, because some of these people would have uh, uh, training camps out in the middle of nowhere. So you you had the
1: personnel, the manpower that you needed to get the job done.
2: That's correct. And the dedication. These people, it was like uh, you couldn't get people to go to sleep. I mean, the investigators became so enmeshed in these investigations that they would practically work around the clock. And it was a team effort. It was, we're referring to we, not FBI, not police department. It's we.
1: Fantastic.
2: So you
1: left the FBI and, and retired from the FBI in 1998. You didn't just throw these skills and knowledge that you gained from all of this, this work. What, what did you do with it? What have you been doing since uh, you retired?
2: Well, what I did was I went with the University of Illinois, and I got involved in writing and research over there, and I wrote a book on terrorism. And it's a college textbook, a 500-page college textbook called Terrorism and Investigators' Handbook. Then I went to work for a company called the Institute for Intergovernmental Research, and this is a not-for-profit entity that exists basically to serve the Department of Justice. And what I've been doing is, as a team of us, we travel around the country training police officers. And it's a government grant called SLAT, State and Local Anti-Terrorism Training. And the training is free to police officers. And we travel all over the country and all the uh, U.S. territories and so forth. And we gather people together and we talk about all aspects of terrorism. We don't really talk about what type of, uh, you know, how to arrest people or how to, uh, you know, how many ambulances to bring to a crime scene or something like that. But we talk about what terrorism is, how to investigate it, uh, the psychology of it, and just about anything you can think about. We talk about what the nature of terrorism is, international, domestic, and we have experts at uh, in each one of these areas. And me, I'm more general investigation. Uh, and of course my book was on how to investigate terrorism, so I talk a great deal about that. And I talk about domestic terrorism cases. And I spend a lot of time right now working on sovereign citizens which are polit- who are political extremists. I've had experience with them for probably 25 years. And these are individuals who sometimes do violent attacks, but they believe that they're not under the jurisdiction of the U.S. government, and uh, they uh, won't obey U.S. laws, and they present problems. In some cases, they've killed police officers. So as a result, uh, I've, been, I've been doing a lot of work on that. More recently, I've been doing a lot of writing, in connection with this research and that type of thing. but So I'm still working on the SLAP program, still working for this not-for-profit group called IIR. And uh, if, if government grants continue, then I will continue doing this. I, I don't know. I'm I'm getting old now, but I, I'm, I still keep myself in shape. So I hope I can continue doing it.
1: Well, what do you think of the – this is my last question for you. Um, but what do you think of the state of – terrorism investigation in the United States? You know, the things that are going on now, are we in a better position to uh, prevent the next attack here in the United States? Do you do you feel confident?
2: I feel very confident. First of all, you can't stop all terrorism, especially the lone wolf type terrorism where you have individuals who are not known by anybody. There's no criminal record, and they suddenly go onto social media, and they become enthralled on some type of philosophy, and now they decided, oh my gosh, I've got nothing to do in life, and I look at this Islamic extremist philosophy, and boy, that's for me. I'm going to do that. Or they look at some sort of, uh, maybe it's animal rights or environmental rights. I've got to do something to save the animals or something like this. It's very difficult for investigators to try to prevent them from doing a terrorist attack. Until they reach out and perhaps try to get weapons or try to, uh, do surveillance on a target or something, then you might be able to catch them. So you can't catch them all. But as far as United States, uh, investigative services are, intelligence services, I think we're the best in the world. I don't think there's anybody that can that. And I think the proof is in the pudding. Uh, during this past year, 19, I'm sorry, 2016, uh, there were over 30 terrorist conspiracies. That were busted by law enforcement. When I say terrorist conspiracy, sometimes it's individuals, sometimes it's a group of people. But over 30 of these things, when people were caught, uh, before they could do the the violent attack, they were either doing the attack or they were trying to go abroad and try to fight, or they were trying to somehow provide material support to a terrorist organization. The year before that, we had even more. So we aren't getting very many terrorist attacks in the United States because of the fact that we have a very effective law enforcement uh, agencies working together. That's the only way. You've got got to work together.
0: And that's the end of the interview. As always, back at jerrywilliams.com, you'll find photos of Bill and newspaper articles providing a little bit more information about the Al Rukin Libyan terrorist conspiracy. If you enjoyed the interview, I hope you share it with your friends, family, and associates. I make it easy for you. At the bottom of each episode show notes, you'll find all the social media share buttons. And while you're on my website, I hope you consider joining the FBI Retired Case File Review newsletter. I send one out only once a month. It's an easy way for you to look at the photos and links for each episode and to get information about the crime fiction that I recommend most weeks. I do not have a crime fiction recommendation for you this week. This week, I've been reading Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. That's because I have been fortunate enough to be invited to be a part of a special story grid workshop this weekend in New York, where the instructor is going to break down Pride and Prejudice analyze it so that we can understand why it works. And then hopefully take those skills that we've learned back home with us to apply them to our own work in progress. I'm currently writing my second novel, Greedy Givers, inspired by an FBI true crime case, my investigation of a $350 million Ponzi scheme involving charities, nonprofits, and wealthy philanthropists. So I'm so excited to be a part of this workshop. This episode was sponsored by FBIretired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public, featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I wanna thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again for another episode of FBI retired case file review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.